Good job, Hank. <clears throat> All right, well, the children are leaving, and last Sunday we began a what I call a four-week message preparing our hearts for the celebration of the season that we're in. We know that we're in the season to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are now into our second week of the four-week message. We'll have a few more, obviously, yet to come before we stop. But you may recall that we started last week in what I call not the typical fashion of maybe preparing our hearts for Christmas like maybe we've done years in the past. Traditionally, it seems each year at this time, people will turn to Matthew chapter 2 or to Luke chapter 2 and review some of the details pertaining to the upcoming birth of our Lord. And it's something we should all read. But this year, in our time together to prepare our hearts, we're not tradition, We're not going to that traditional birth account that's written in the Gospels. What we're doing, rather, instead, is that we're looking at attributes and qualities that exist of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that makes him unique and special, which then also helps us understand that the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, coming up that we celebrate obviously on the 25th, is the most important birth in the history of the world. I mean, it already is, but we look at the attributes that makes him so much more special. So last week we started in Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3, and, and notice the special characteristics of his perfection. He is the only one that we know is perfect in every possible way. He was without sin. He set the example for us in everything whether it was sacrifice, humility, understanding, fulfilling the Father's will, and so much more. I mean, he's perfect, and he set the example for us in his sinless perfection. Well, this week, we move along then, preparing our hearts once more for Christmas, coming up rather quickly, 19 days as we've already heard and learned, with another unique attribute. It is called the supremacy of Christ. The text to help us understand the supremacy that Jesus has is found in Colossians. If last week's text was very rich and powerful, this week's text is just as rich and powerful as last week. Arguably, maybe even more rich and powerful than the text we found in Hebrews chapter 12. So turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to Colossians. It is in the first chapter. It is six verses. It's verses 15 through 20. Let us read it together. Stand with me, if you're able to, as we simply stand to honor the reading of the word. And we find in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, these words. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father, 
Lord, we thank you for this reading of this word today and for these powerful words that we've read, Lord, and for what we shall learn from them of how we find that Jesus is indeed superior, sovereign. He is supreme. He is above all things. Lord, we recognize that today in our time together to find this great attribute that we not only admire, but we should honor. Lord, we prepare our hearts today for this Christmas season to recognize how special the birth of your one and only son was to this world, to us as individuals, and to us as a church body together. So Lord, we invite your spirit to lead and to reign and to let these words to be expressed here today does not be the words I want to say, but the words you want us to hear. Let us apply them in our lives and prepare our hearts for the birth of the King. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, you may find this remarkable, but I once had someone to tell me. I don't remember when, don't remember who. Those details are not important. But I had once a person tell me that they did not understand why Jesus received so much emphasis, so much recognition during this time of the year. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. They said, Jesus, why is he so special? I mean, I, what has he done that makes him receive all this special emphasis and training? What, what, what is it about him that makes people emphasize Jesus? Why is he so special? Why is Christmas all about him? When I heard those words, when that person expressed that to me, I was thinking to myself, you have got to be kidding me. You don't understand. It's all about Jesus. It's his day, not our day. We celebrate his birth upon this particular day of the year. It's all about Jesus. It should be all about him, nothing else. Now, the text we read today that we just read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, reminds us of this fact that it is indeed all about Jesus. It tells us that he is supreme, he's above all things. And by the way, that's not just during this time of the year where he is supreme and above all things, that is every day of the year. We may recognize it, we may honor it this time of the year, but he is supreme and above all things every day of any calendar year. Maybe that's why Gary Weeben in his commentary on Colossians states this, that Jesus is greater than the contemporary view of him. He says, there is no more significant passage for today's world or for today's church than this one. When you really stop and think about it, it becomes sad. I mean, the contemporary, modern society view of Jesus is sad. It's embarrassing. It's really incredibly absurd. And when you look at some of the things that we learn that people know about Jesus or don't know, it's rather frightening. One commentary said the modern view of Jesus is more fractured than it has ever been since the second and third centuries of what used to be known as the Christian era. It's frightening the things you can learn about what people today don't know really about Christmas and about Jesus. The Barna Group, 
will often do studies, religious studies, to help us understand what the pulse of the country and Americans or the world is pertaining to religious matters or especially to Jesus. So recently they conducted a study called What Do Americans Believe About Jesus? I want to share with you a few of the informational facts that we learn about what people in America believe about Jesus. Here are a few of the results. It says, while most Americans categorized and statistical at 87%, so that is a large majority of Americans, 87% of Americans believe Jesus was a real person. Okay, so maybe it starts off okay, 87%, if you want to accept that, that Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. But listen further. Only 56% of Americans believed he was the Son of God. Jesus, who they say he is, 26% believed that he was just a spiritual leader like Muhammad or Buddha. 18% are not even sure that Jesus was divine. That's remarkable to know that Americans, over half the Americans, believe that, or, or, or did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. It goes further. In regards to his perfection, his being without sin that we talked about last week, which he sets the example for all of us, the study found of Americans, what do Americans believe about Jesus? 52% believe that Jesus was human and committed sins like any other people. Again, I'm thinking, you're kidding me. Over half the Americans Believe that Jesus committed sins like any other person? Last week, maybe they should go back and read Hebrews chapter 12. 52%. In the matter of the afterlife, which of course is heaven, not surprisingly, most people fall into the belief that they will be in heaven because they are a good person. And we could continue on and on throughout the study conducted by the Barna Group of what do Americans believe about Jesus, but maybe you're getting the picture that a lot of confusion exists in our society in modern day about Jesus. But in Paul's day, there was no Barna Group study. But people were still unsure about Jesus. In fact, Paul lived his life to promote Christ and to help people believe and understand that Jesus was truly the Son of God. So here then, in the letter we're looking at today in Colossians, Paul once again writes a letter to a church to confront the heresy that exists about Jesus. Now, interesting fact before we begin to dissect the text is that the Colossian letter is a letter he writes to a church in the city of Colossae that he has never been to. I mean, it's much unlike Paul. Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament. Thirteen letters are contributed to Paul that he writes, and, and of, the, of the thirteen, he visited not but among all the the, 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 the churches. But in Colossae, to the Colossian letter, he's never been there. But yet he writes to help them understand about the supremacy of Christ. So today's text then could be divided in two different ways, two different sections we can divide the text. It is first, Jesus' relationship to creation in verses 15 through 17. And then secondly, we'll expand upon his relationship to the church in verses 18 through 20. 
But the ultimate goal for all of us here today is to understand his supremacy. All the things we'll talk about today in relation to creation or relation to the church will all demonstrate his supremacy. So the central theme then is this, that Jesus is supreme. He is superior. He is indeed sovereign. He is above all things. That's the theme in which we will have today to help us understand the supremacy of Christ. Again, two sections. The first, the Jesus relationship to creation, verses 15 through 17. So we start at the very beginning of verse 15 with the phrase that he is the image of the invisible God. The word for image in the Greek is the word icon. So it says Jesus is the icon or the image of God. But the question really is this, that we need to beg for clarification. The question really then, as Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the question really becomes, how does anyone know what God is really like? I mean, who can truly say? I mean, has anyone ever seen God to describe him physically? Is it possible even to describe his image? I mean, those are good questions when you begin to think about the image of God. I mean, Isaiah and Ezekiel and John all saw God's throne. Isaiah even adds in chapter 6, verse 1, that he saw God upon the throne. But he never offers a description of God. Ezekiel and John do offer a description, but neither say they are describing God himself, but rather describing the one who sits upon the throne. John even begins to say he saw one like the Son of Man. I think Roger has some of that in his reading today from the book of Revelation during his Sunday school time. But then as, as impossible as it seems to find someone that can give us an accurate description of God physically, in one sense it actually is possible to know what God is like through his creation. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he says, since the creation of the world's God and visible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been made clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. In that regard, Plato, the philosopher, actually claimed the whole world, everything, was the icon or the image of God. But no, honestly then, as we try to find the description of the image of God, that becomes an incomplete image. So we consider a different source, a different set of scriptures to maybe help us understand the image of God. So we go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, our icon, in our likeness. So God created man in his own icon, his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All right, this is the book of Genesis. James even refers to it as well. He places restrictions on men's cursing of the tongue toward other men because we have been made in God's likeness, as he says in James chapter 3, verse 9. But man, when you begin to think about it, while made in the icon or image of God, becomes an imperfect, because we are imperfect, we become an imperfect image of God an unreliable indicator of God's true character. 
So we look for another image of God to help us understand. In the Old Testament, it is common that Israel is described as the image of God. God had intended for Israel to show forth his character to all the world. But Israel as a nation, like man, fell short. So is there anything that helps us understand the image of God? What remains to tell us the, the image of God? How can we know about the image of God? Is there anything? And the only thing that exists to tell us about the image of God is his son, Jesus. It was not until Christ became flesh, the birth, that Christ became flesh, that he demonstrated the perfect character of God, which is the image of God that we have. John chapter 1, verse 14 said, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, and Jesus alone, was the perfect image of God's character. He alone, Jesus, and only him revealed what God really had in mind for all of mankind all along. He is the image of God. So our theme comes back into play. It tells us again that Jesus is supreme. He is above all things. He is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But in regards to the supremacy of Christ, Paul doesn't just lay that there and stop. In regards to the supremacy, he adds in verse 15 that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, admittedly, it is difficult to translate verse 15 in the Greek with any accuracy because the idea of an actual birth offers difficulty in the translation. Traditionally, in, in Judaism, Adam, Adam is described as the firstborn of the world. Even though Adam wasn't actually born, he was created. So scholars look upon the Greek text and our failure in English to properly convey what the phrase means, firstborn of our creation, and suggest the phrase really means two things. It means priority and it means sovereignty. In a matter of priority, that Jesus existed before all of creation. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed before all things. Now, a lot of people get confused when they hear John 1.1. 1, 1. So in a letter, Paul offers some clarity. And the first part of the next two verses, verse 16 and 17, offers some things to make it clear that Christ was before creation. It says, verse 16, for by him... All things were created, and he is before all things. So in short, Paul emphasized that Jesus existed prior to and independent of creation. That is the priority that scholars report, point to in the phrase firstborn over all creation. But maybe even more important than priority is the, mean, the word sovereignty. In biblical times, the rights of the firstborn males in the ancient world, particularly in Israel, knew that the firstborn meant they became a symbol, a symbol for the power and status enjoyed by being the firstborn. 
Recall the situation, if you will, if you know about Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob. Which one came first? Esau. They're twins. They're not identical twins, but from the womb, Esau came before Jacob. So by the firstborn policy, the protocol exists during the ancient Israel. It meant that Esau, being the firstborn, received the status and power enjoyed by the position of being the firstborn. He received the inheritance. Now, Esau and Jacob both knew this. So they both, Esau wanted, had the birthright. Jacob wanted the birthright. So Jacob then deceived Esau, not once but twice, into taking the birthright, the firstborn inheritance from him. Now, let me explain that by saying this. You've met my brother Ken, okay? Ken is younger than I am, all right? I am the eldest. I am the oldest. So if that protocol existed today of the firstborn, having the inheritance, the proper position of power and status, that would be me because I'm older than my brother Ken. That would mean Ken, I wish he was here today, would learn, would hear me say that he is lesser than I am. You'll tell him, thank you. He might listen later, so he'll learn. But here's the thing. You know Ken. You've met him. So if you know him, if you've met him, you know he'd been just like Jacob and stole it from me anyway. But that was the expectation, that the firstborn of all creation had the position of power and status. So getting back to the text, Paul emphasizes Jesus' supremacy by stating that he is the firstborn of all creation, as in he is sovereign. Not in the first to be born, but the one having the ultimate position of power and status. Because indeed, Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And then all things are subject to him. Paul even acknowledges that in these verses, verse 16, when he says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is above all things. All things are subject to him. He is in the position, the power, status. He is sovereign. So Paul then, in his letter to the Colossians, used the word firstborn to properly state Jesus' sovereignty. People in Colossae, having the practice of the firstborn protocol, would have understood Paul's comment as it relates to Jesus. They would have known that Paul was referring to Jesus' unique sovereign position as the firstborn. So again, our theme comes back into play. The theme is this. Jesus is supreme. He is the firstborn of all creation. Therefore, he is above all things. And yes, he indeed is sovereign. But once again, Paul doesn't just lay it out there and quit. He goes further. He's not finished yet with the matter of the supremacy of Christ. He has not yet rest his case. Consider verse 17 when it says that he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's the latter part of that verse in which begs elaboration. And it says in him all things hold together. Because here Paul is saying that Christ is not only the beginning and the end of creation, but he also maintains 
as in keeping order during the interim period. Yeah, so it is Christ. It is Jesus Christ who makes the universe a cosmos and not instead of a chaotic mess. He holds everything together. Jesus holds everything together. He maintains a world in control that often to us looks completely out of control. Now, I was thinking about this and I thought maybe the best biblical example to convey that Jesus maintains control instead of chaos is the fact that he calms the raging sea, the storm. The storm, the miracle of calming the storm was so powerful that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recorded in their Gospels. I mean, to say the least, the disciples were quite impressed with the actions of our Lord. Now think about the situation. If you know it, you know that they're going to see a Galilee, and the storm comes in, and there's this raging wind and sea is tossing the boat to and fro. It's turning every direction. It's about to get capsized. The disciples are worried. They're fearful. If you or I had been there, we probably would have been much more fearful, especially me because I don't know how to swim. So they're fearful. They're worrying, what are we going to do? It's out of control. They look back. And what's Jesus doing? Peacefully sleeping. So they look back at our Lord and they're worried, they're concerned about what's going to happen with all this storm and sea and rain and wind. And they awake Jesus and he simply rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. Does that not demonstrate the God, uh, Jesus' control in all things? He spoke it, and it happened. He maintains control. We think it sometimes is a chaotic mess, but Jesus maintains control because he is supreme. He is sovereign. So our theme comes back once again into play. Jesus is supreme. He is above all things. And now he holds all things together because he indeed is sovereign, mighty, and supreme. So Paul's making a wonderful case here about the supremacy of Christ. We are talking about the supremacy of Christ because it's a wonderful attribute that our Lord possesses that is unique to him, and we celebrate that fact with his birth this season. But Paul is making the case with the Colossians. He emphasized the following. He says, Jesus Christ is... The image of God. He said, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is the epitome of creation. All things are created in him and for him. He is the agent of creation. He is beyond it himself. The very purpose of which creation exists. And Jesus is the power to make an orderly cosmos instead of having it to be chaos. So if Paul was then presented, Presenting his case in court, he could say, I lay this to rest. I've made my case. Christ is supreme. He is above all things. He could lay it to rest, and it would be proof enough. But Paul doesn't stop there. As he's talked about the relationship to creation to melt his case, to be Jesus the supreme, he now goes further in verses 18 through 20 of Jesus' relationship to the church. So let us read that text once more. 
Verse 18, Paul continues. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word church in verse 18 comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which essentially means assembly or gathering. Like we assemble, we gather to hear the good news, to learn of the word of God, but also to praise and to worship him. But having said that, the question still remains, what of the function of the church? And to that particular question, it is here then that Paul uses one of the most striking metaphors to describe the relationship that exists that Christ has to the church. To the church, he says, Christ is the head, we are the body. Jesus is the head of the body. The body is the church that is you and me. But what does all that mean? To answer the question, we must consider the context in which Paul is writing. Because Paul still has the problem fresh in his mind that gave the occasion to the letter in the first place. One of the very big problems, or the primary problem, is that the Colossian heresy is lowering the place of Christ. They're making them almost to nothing. So, I mean, Paul is trying to argue about the supremacy of Christ to let them know truly that he is something. Another problem arising out of the Colossian church is a lack of unity. So then Paul very wisely states that Christ is supreme. He is the head of the body, the body being the church. And so as the head of the body, or Christ's headship of the church, he is the one who is in control. Now listen, as the head controls the body, so Christ controls the church. It is he alone who determines the actions of the parts of the body, you and I. He alone gives life to the body. When one can live without other many parts of the body, I can live without my appendix. But look at me, I can't live without my head. All right, I can't live without Christ. But certainly we cannot live without the head because it's, it's not dispensable. Take your body, for example. I mean, there's all kinds of debate and argument over the definition of death. But it's pretty well accepted death occurs when the brain stops functioning. Yeah, there's the heart too. But when the brain stops functioning, it is that moment that death begins to truly set in. Because it's the head that gives life. It is the head that gives protection. It is the brain. In our head, it is the brain that tells the body to keep your hand out of fire. It is the head that tells the body that something is wrong. It is the head, the brain, that safely keeps the body from being in danger. It is the head that keeps the body from being in danger. So then Christ, of course, does the same thing. He is the head. We are the body. We are the church. He has a warning system for every one of us. He has a warning system for the church. He warns that there are some things that are harmful to the health of the body of the church. He is the head. We are the body. 
We cannot live without Christ. So again, we see then that Paul's making the same case with the relationship to creation. Now with the relationship to the church, he's saying the same thing, that Jesus is supreme. He is above all things. He is the head of the body, which is you and I of the church. Another notable consequence of Christ's headship over the church is that he is superior to all else in the church. He's not just another prophet or wise rabbi. He was not like many Americans may believe, like Muhammad or like Buddha. He is unique. And because he is unique as he had the body, he is superior. So with the idea of superiority, Paul offers five subordinate ideas to demonstrate he is superior over the body of the church. He says he is the beginning in verse 18. Paul adds in verse 18 that he is the firstborn from among the dead. Again, the word firstborn, which you've already elaborated on a little bit, which means more than the contemporary significance. But Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, that Christ had been raised from the dead, the very first fruits of those who had fallen asleep, referring to those who had died. So Jesus was raised to die no more. In a sense, his resurrection was first. He was the firstborn from among the dead. Paul also says in everything that he might be preeminent. Preeminent as in prioritized. The status. And very important to us in our lives. The question there is, is he really preeminent in your life? Is he really the priority? Is he really important in our lives? In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Recall that God expressed during the Lord's baptism when John the Baptist has seen Jesus coming in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. What did he say? He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then finally, we find that Christ's priority is seen in that he is to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus Christ is superior because he alone is able to reconcile all things. You or I cannot reconcile all things on heaven and on earth, but Jesus is able to do so by the blood that was shed. So in these ways, Paul's making a case. He's making an argument. He's already given us much information about the creation. But now he's going further to Jesus' relationship to the church. And he's saying essentially these things. He's getting ready to roll it all up and make a final case. He's saying that Christ is head of the church because he is in control, he is superior, and he's vitally linked to it. How can we function? How can we gather how can we celebrate Christmas without Christ being the head of the church? Paul's making this case. The Christ is supreme. It's a supremacy to creation and supremacy to the church. It's all the same. Christ is supreme. So once again, we refer to the theme. You're hearing it over and over. It's getting repetitive. But notice how it's also getting longer. That Jesus is supreme. He, yes, is superior. He is sovereign. He is above all things. He is the image of the invisible God. He is in control. Holds all things together. 
And yes, he is the head of the body of the church. It is the supremacy of Christ. Another unique attribute that we find here today that makes him worthy of having a time of the year in which he receives all the glory and honor. He is the one to celebrate this season. Last week it was the perfection. Today it is his supremacy. Two unique characteristics we find of Jesus that makes it right to prepare our hearts this time each year to celebrate his birth. Remember how we started the message? The guy that come to me and said, why is it that Jesus gets all the recognition? What makes him so special? Why is it all about him? Why is it all about Jesus? Why did this year people begin to emphasize about Jesus? I think if someone should ask you, as he asked me many years ago, what has he done that is so special? Why is it all about him? Is you can answer his question or her question with another question. And that would be, what has Jesus not done? What has he not done for all of us? I mean, he was born. Jesus was born into a corrupt, sinful world. He fulfilled the Father's plan of reconciliation. I mean, he came to the world not to condemn, but to save, as it tells in John 3.17. He took all of humanity's sin upon himself, the one who had no sin, despite what 52% of Americans believe. He had no sin. He died for all of mankind. He sacrificed his very life so that we could live, personifying what it tells in John 15, 13, that greater love have no friend in this than the man to lay down his life for his friend. What has Jesus not done? He's done everything. And he did not do it for himself. He did it for me and he did it for you and for all the world. It is right that he gets all the glory and honor, the emphasis, the recognition upon this time of the year because he's done everything he needs to do. So it's right that we truly prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the birth of our Lord and King. His unique attributes makes him truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has done it all. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message and the truth that presents us today. We pray, Lord, that we would prepare our hearts to truly honor the birth of our King. Lord, I pray that we shall receive this message today and consider it now. We strongly believe, Lord, that he is sovereign, that he is mighty, that he is supreme, that he is above all things. This message talks about the supremacy of Christ, Lord, and we're thankful to receive it. So I pray for all of us here today, the body, the body of the church, Lord, that we recognize there's true one head that we cannot live without. That's your son, Christ. That's your son, Jesus, Lord. So I pray for all my brothers and sisters here this morning that we shall properly receive the message and begin to place it in our hearts and prepare our hearts for worship and for praise and glory through our King born upon this time of the year. Let him receive all the glory. Let him receive all the honor. 
It's all about him, Lord, the sacrifice he made for us. We thank you, Lord, for this message today. We pray, Lord, for one another to receive it in full. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.